Would you pray with me, please? Father God, in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we, we thank you, Father. We thank you with all our hearts for all that you do in us. We thank you for being with us. We thank you for teaching us. My Father, we thank you just because it is a joy to be in your presence. And in your presence we find life. And we find joy and we find peace. Father, in your presence we empty ourselves of ourselves to seek and be filled by you. We worship you this day and we offer your, ourselves to you. Come, Lord, come and do in us and through us all that you want done this day, Father. That you be exalted. You alone be exalted with the Son and the Holy Spirit. We pray this of you, my Father and God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. May I invite you, please, to open your Bibles. Whether you bring your Bibles, whether you use the Bible that is in front of you, or, or on your phone, or iPad, or wherever it is that you uh, can read the Word of God, um, we invite you, please, if you would uh, do that uh, today. We are in the Gospel of John. We're in the Gospel of John. We've been in the Gospel of John for about three or four weeks already. And all of those times always, or at least this section has been on, on chapter 6 of John. Chapter 6 of John. So we invite you to open, or I invite you to open your Bibles there. Chapter, chapter 6 of John. The context of this chapter, and I hope you can remember some of what I've taught before, but the context is that Jesus has sent the 12 disciples out to do ministry, and they have now returned from their mission trip, declaring to Jesus how God has used them, and how God has healed the sick, how demons have been cast out, how people have heard the gospel of the kingdom of God preached, and they report back to the Lord all that God has done with them and through them. And Jesus decided to take them away from the busyness and kind of give them a chance to rest in a retreat. And he takes them over to the area of Bethsaida 
in the northeast of the Lake of Galilee, and you can see the map that is being shown to you. And that is where the feeding of the 5,000 occurs, at Bethsaida, just to the north, northeast of the Lake of Galilee. Over 5,000 people are here, are, are fed that day, and they have heard Jesus teach. And as the evening falls, Jesus tells his disciples to get on a boat and cross over to the northeastern, to the northwestern side, to the area of Capernaum, which is the hub of where Jesus' ministry always was. That's where the house of Peter and Andrew was, and that's what Jesus used all the time. And from there he went on missions, and then he returned back to Capernaum. The people get up in the morning, those that stayed over in Bethsaida, and they start looking for Jesus. Jesus, of course, is not there. He has walked on water, met up the disciples in the middle of the, of the Sea of Galilee, and gone over to, uh, to Capernaum. When they get up in the morning, they're looking for Jesus and the disciples, and they realize they're gone. So they figure that he's gone back to Capernaum, and they get on boats, and they go over to Capernaum, and that's where they find Jesus and the disciples. The end of the section that we're looking at right now, uh, on verse 59 of chapter 6, tells us that Jesus has entered a synagogue. It says, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And a conversation ensues between these people that are, and believe me, they were fed a meal the night before, and they now want breakfast. Okay? It's, it's really, that's really what's going on. They want Jesus to keep doing miracles and keep giving them what they want and what they need. And they're looking for Jesus to feed them again. And the thing is, if he had done another miracle and given them breakfast, they would be back for lunch. Because that's what they wanted, that's what they needed. And as long as Jesus has in mind being a social worker, why not? They're going to keep going back to him. Of course, when they arrive at Capernaum, what Jesus says to them is, Why do you strive so hard for the food that perishes? Why do you work so hard, your sweat and tear, your hard labor, so much effort to, to just have what you need for today? that will sustain you today, that will keep you today, but once you eat it, it perishes, and then you're going to have to get more tomorrow, and tomorrow, and the next day, or you will die. He says, where you should put your effort, where you should put all your strength, all your attention, is in the kind of food that leads to eternal life. That's one of the things Jesus says to them. And when they continue to question him, Jesus reveals himself and he says, I am 
the bread of life. He who believes in me, actually he says, he who comes to me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. So Jesus reveals himself as the answer to the hungers and the thirst of humanity, and in particular of those 5,000 or whatever were left of the number that are just looking for what they want for today and are not as preoccupied with the things that matter for eternity. And I think that should speak to all of us. It really should. Because we all do the same. And there's nothing wrong with working hard so you can have a roof over your head and food at your table and to have the best that you can have. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you do that at the expense of eternity and you put that ahead of eternal life, you are playing with your life. Because you're going to die. It doesn't matter how big a house you have how much food is in your pantry, how well you eat or dress, or how great your car is, you're going to die. And everything that you possess will have an end. But what Jesus offers is something that you can never, ever lose. He's offering to us life eternal. And he says that that bread is in himself. Is in himself. And one of the things that I dealt with last week, that I just want to mention because I think it's important, is I explained to you last week how the act of salvation is as an initiative from God. Salvation is a divine initiative. Because when you pay attention to this chapter, you recognize that it is the Father who sends the Son. It is the Father's initiative to seek the lost, to see the hungry, to seek the thirsty, to seek the the sick, to seek everyone that could use what Jesus has to offer, and it is the Father's will that the Son comes with this offering. It is the Father's initiative to save. We're also told that it is the Father who draws people to the Son. We have this idea at times that it was my decision that I went up and I said, Jesus, I choose you. Like it's our initiative to choose Jesus. When in reality, John, uh, Jesus says to these people and to us in this chapter that God has been looking for you and drawing your heart and melting your heart and being involved in your greatest moments of needs. Even if you did not recognize he was present, God was always drawing you, drawing you, drawing you until you're able to make a response. But it is the Father's initiative to draw to the Savior. It is the Father's initiative. 
It tells us also, Jesus tells us, that it is the Father that will teach us. And it also, Jesus tells us so clearly in this chapter, that the Father has expressed to the Son His will. And that the will of the Father is that Jesus not cast out any one person that comes to him. That Jesus does not cast out any one person that comes to him. Sometimes we feel like our sins are too great. And God really cannot, in fact, should not even accept us. That somehow we have to do more to become acceptable by God. And one of the things that Jesus so clearly says in this chapter is he will receive you as you are. He will receive you with your past. He will receive you with your brokennesses. He will receive you as you come. The only thing is to come. And he will in no way cast out anyone. He also tells us that it is the will of the Father that not a single person be lost at the end of time. You know, we hear also in John about how the sheep know the shepherd. Well, the shepherd know the sheep. And he will not lose one of us. He will not lose us to the enemy. He will not lose us to sin. He will not lose us to death. He will not lose us to anything. We are secured in the Son's arms. Nothing in this world can take you away from the Savior's arms. It is the will of the Father that Jesus not lose one single person. And it is the will of the Father that Jesus give eternal life to those that come. And it is the will of the Father that Jesus will raise Every single person that comes will raise him from the grave into eternal life, and they, he will raise him to life. Death will not conquer the believer. Death will not be the end of anyone who has come to the Son. Death will not be the end of it. He will raise you up at the last day. That is the will of the Father, as Jesus tells us in this chapter. However, there is in this chapter also the idea that what is required of us is a response. If salvation and the act of salvation is the, the Father's initiative and divine initiative there is a response that we must make. You have to come to the Son. You have to believe in the Son. And you have to surrender your life into the hands and the will of the Son.
Because faith is not just about doctrine believed in your head or in your heart. Faith is accompanied by the kind of behavior that exemplifies that belief. I always say that belief and behavior are attached. You will behave according to what you believe. And if your belief is real, is honest, is sincere, your life will manifest the changes that that belief will bring about. Belief and behavior are attached. That is our response. That is the only response that I find in Scripture that you and I have to make in order to be saved. To come to the Son and believe in the Son that the Father sent Him to be the Savior of the world. This morning's passage, which is so powerful, if we're going to understand this morning's passage, uh, we need to attach it to where we left off last week, which is in verse 51. It's in verse 51 of John. And, and Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh. The bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. First of all, we need to see that Jesus says, I am the living bread, versus the dead bread that gets cooked. And it's just, just bread. Okay, just a little bit of flour, perhaps a little bit of yeast, but it is dead bread. Jesus is the living bread. Because Jesus is pointing to himself. He's not pointing to anything else we may receive. He's pointing primarily to himself. If you receive anything else, sacramentally or otherwise, but you do not receive Jesus, you are not receiving the main ingredient. You can go through all the rituals of the church and you don't receive Jesus. You are missing the main ingredient of each and every one of the rituals and each and every one of the sacraments. Jesus points to himself, not to an event. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So he says here that he is the living bread. The living bread, not only that is living, but that gives life. Secondly, he says in this passage that he came down from heaven. Because it is the Father's will to send the Son. Thirdly, it says that he's the bread of eternal life. And then he makes this statement, which is where I want to draw your attention. He says that the bread that he gives is his flesh. The bread that he gives is his flesh. And of course, as I explained last week, he's really pointing to the cross. Isn't he? That's where he's pointing to. It is at the cross that the flesh of the Son was sacrificed and broken and torn 
It is at the cross that it is offered. It is at the cross that the blood of Jesus washes away the sins of the world. And he says that he's doing this for the life of the world. It's a missionary move. It's a missional move. The reason the Son and the reason the Father and the reason that the Son is doing all of this is for you and for the world. It's not even for us to possess. It's for us to give to others as well and to call others into this relationship. In the passage that we're dealing with today, the picture that Jesus is painting for us and where he gets the emphasis of what he's teaching is a meal. That's the picture that Jesus is drawing us into. He's drawing us into a picture of a meal where there is meat offered. Whether it was chicken or beef or a lamb or a goat or fish, the picture that that Jesus is painting is a meal where meat is offered and wine is offered. That's what Jesus is talking about here. But not just any meal. What Jesus is pointing to is first and foremost the Passover meal. The Passover meal. If you remember the story of Moses going to Egypt and how he comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh refuses after six different terrible plagues. And as the last plague is about to come, which is the angel of the Lord coming over the land of Egypt and killing the firstborn of every Egyptian and anybody else, including Jews, if they didn't do what Jesus said. Jesus said and tells the people to have a meal, to choose a lamb at the beginning of the month and to watch that lamb to make sure that it is without defect and that it is clean and that it is pure and that it has no damage whatsoever. And on the 14th day of the month, the month of Nisan, that lamb was to be killed and the family would come together and they were all to eat in the evening of that meat. And of that wine. And they were to have this meal dressed and ready to go. Because that night the angel of the Lord would pass over Egypt. And they were to take blood, the blood of that lamb. And paint it on the doorposts of the, of the house where they were staying. And when the angel of the Lord would come to bring about the last of the plagues. The firstborn would be killed except those places that where the dental of the house was covered with blood. That's the painting that Jesus is drawing for us when he says, 
that the meal that he is preparing for us requires his flesh. Because Jesus is connecting that the Passover meal was when God came at his initiative to save his people from slavery and to lead them into a relationship with their God. And now at the cross, Jesus is delivering his people again from slavery, except not physical slavery, but the slavery of sin and condemnation and judgment. As the lamb's flesh was eaten, so does the flesh of the Son of God needs to be eaten and received. Jesus is connecting the past with what he's about to do. So he says he is the bread of life who gives life to whoever comes to him. The painting that he, what he has in mind is that communal feast where we are to receive the meat, we are to receive the Savior, we are to receive him into our lives. But not only is Jesus remembering the Passover meal, Jesus is reminding those that are there at the synagogue, he's reminding them of their Passover meal, which they celebrate every single year at a particular time. They were to always remember that Passover and relive by eating of the lamb and drinking of the different cups of wine. They were to relieve constantly what God had done to set them free. And Jesus is reminding us that that's exactly what happened at Monday Thursday. When he took in that very meal... He took bread and broke it and said, take, this is my body. And then he took one of the cups of wine and he said, here, drink, this is my blood which is shed for you. Jesus is pointing to those meals. And of course, Jesus is pointing to the Eucharist. He's pointing to the Eucharist because every time we celebrate the Eucharist, we remember that Jesus' flesh was given for us. And that Jesus' blood was shed and offered for the salvation of the world. Every time that we lay hands on that bread and that wine and we say, Come Holy Spirit! Come and do this thing. Make this a holy moment, a sacramental moment, a sacred feast. And then we come and say, give me, Father. And we eat and we drink. We are participating of what Jesus is painting this day at this particular time when he says, I am the bread of life. And then Jesus gives, my friends, the most shocking words that we will find in the entire Bible. With an intention to shock those that were listening. You see, we look at the Eucharist or we look at Passover 
And we understand it after the cross and after the resurrection. But the Jews who are listening for the first time, Jesus say, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life in you. Imagine the shock of those words. You see, Jesus wasn't making following him easy. Just come, it's all right. I'll lead you to the Father. He's making it hard because being a true disciple of Jesus requires a surrender of all that we are. And he's intending to shock that crowd that simply is looking for breakfast. He's shocking them so that they either stay or leave. But that day, a decision was going to have to be made. Either he was going to be Lord, or he was going to be social worker. And he shocks them. And perhaps we need to be shocked. Because after the cross, we celebrate communion... Almost every time we come together, and it sometimes ceases to have the shocking impact that we're about to receive the broken body of Jesus. And it becomes a routine, and it becomes rote, and perhaps you and I need to be shocked to realize what we're about to do is not a simple meal, but a meal that God has provided. And so Jesus first, Jesus puts it in the negative. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. People, these are the hardest words I can figure out or remember in Scripture. Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood, you have no life in you. You remain dead in your trespasses. You remain without God, and you remain without a Savior. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life in you. And then he says it again, but this time he says it in the positive. He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Listen, coming to Jesus has to be the greatest decision that you and I can ever make in our lives. Every other decision is about how I can live the best I can here and now. But Jesus is a decision that leads to life eternal or death eternal. These words are so shocking that they either lead to life or they lead to death. He who does not receive the Son does not receive life, 
And whosoever receives the Son receives eternity. These are the most shocking and awe and awesome words I can find in all of Scripture. Unless you receive me, unless you receive my sacrifice, Unless you come to the cross and there leave your burden and your sins. And unless you war, you receive me as you receive bread, as you receive drink. Unless you receive me and abide in me and I in you. You will have no life. You can't do it by yourselves. There's nothing you can do to be acceptable to God. It's God's initiative to seek for you. The only thing you can do is respond. It's respond. Respond in faith. Respond in letting go. Respond in making Him Lord. Respond in worshiping God. Respond. Respond. It's the only thing that is asked of you. There are several results here that I just want to, to bring to your attention. Because once you eat the bread and drink the wine and you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, because that's the meaning of it, it says that he will raise you up at the last day. That's one of the results of coming to Jesus. He will raise you up at the last day. Number two, it says that his, his flesh is food indeed and his blood is drink indeed. It is indeed because you have to receive it. It is through bread, it is through wine, it is through body, and it is through blood. And you can receive it as you receive food. You receive him into you, because that's where he's beneficial. Not in the pantry, not in the cupboards, in you. Not in the Bible. You can have many Bibles at your home, that doesn't make you a disciple and a follower. It's receiving Jesus that saves. It's receiving Jesus into your heart and into your life that saves. And it also says that when you do this, you will abide in him. You will have unity with him. You will have communion with him. You will have fellowship with him. In a way, when you do that, you're agreeing that Jesus is who he says he is. And it says that you will have life. That's the results of receiving Jesus. That's the results. Listen, I have lived, I have lived many years, maybe not as many as, as some of you, but certainly a lot more than many of you. And I received my Lord Jesus Christ when I was in my teens, my early teens, perhaps my early 20s. And I can tell you I'm not better than anybody else. I, I've, just, I've done many things that I should not have done. But I have to tell you that when Jesus comes into your life, your life is different. Amen. Who you were is transformative. If you allow Jesus to be Lord and Savior, truly Lord and Savior, 
if you receive him into your life, Jesus can transform you in ways that you cannot imagine. In the midst of trouble, you will have peace. In the midst of pain, you will have healing. In the midst of sorrow, you will have companionship. In the midst of judgment, you will know that God will set you free. In the midst of whatever you face in life, you will never be taken out of the Father's hand. And you can have that confidence and that result when you come to the Lord. He will not make you better than your neighbor. But he will certainly save you. He will certainly bless you. If you give Jesus Christ the lordship over your life. He who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood will have eternal life. I don't know how else to give it to you. It's as honest and as sincere as I can possibly share it with you. He who rejects the Son rejects eternal life. So what Jesus is painting for us is an invitation to a messianic feast where it is the Messiah that gives himself his body, his flesh, and his blood. And he invites you to come to the meal. To come to the meal and receive salvation. One of the sad things in a way is that I get to preach these sermons to the saved. It's like preaching to the choir, they say. But I pray that as I preach this sermon to you, that if it touches your heart and it touches your mind, that you would recognize that you need to take this sermon to others. That this is the message of salvation, not just for you, but for the world. That it is a missional message. That God is seeking the lost and he's given his lamb to be slaughtered. And that whoever eats of that lamb and drinks his blood will have everlasting life. I want to give it to you so that you take it to others. Please don't leave it here in this church. Tell others to listen to it in the website. Make it your own sermon. Change it. Add to it. Bring your testimony to it. But without the body and the blood of Jesus, without his sacrifice, there is no salvation. But death everlasting. And if for whatever reason, there's someone in the church today that either has been hiding behind the sacraments or have not yet made a full and complete decision to let Jesus be Lord, I invite you today 
to take a moment and do it. It doesn't require a priest. It doesn't require a pastor. It doesn't require anything but that you respond to what God has initiated in your life. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. If this is the day of salvation in your life, make it so. Amen.